0: Hello, and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter, and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews, and short stories, and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription, and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, onto the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. Welcome back to our chat with Sarah Griswood, the author of Tudors in Love. Coming up in part two, we'll be discussing the courtly code and how it was used with ladies of the age, including Anne of Cleves, Lady Jane Grey, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth I. I would recommend you listen to part one if you haven't already. For those that have, welcome back. We move to uh, an, another wife that I'm, I'm, I'm always very interested in and, and always got sympathy for, but she did yeah. like, at least get away with her life. And that's Anne of Cleves, uh, Thomas Cromwell's choice. Um, now, she wasn't quite what Henry was after. You know, he wouldn't have, um, have done well for, uh, in Andreas Kapalanus's uh, approval ratings uh, in dealing with, de- dealing with Anne. I mean, where does the courtly code well, leave us here?
1: Yeah, well, you see, I find it's quite significant, I think, that, uh, for my view of Henry, certainly, that of all the six wives, this was the only time he tried to make the kind of marriage that would have been considered normal for a medieval or early modern royal, i.e. with a foreign princess or notable and one he may never even have met. The only time he tried, and he couldn't carry it through. There's evidence that before this Anne, odd, isn't it, that she has the same name as Anne Boleyn, um, that before Anne of Cleves arrived, he was kind of polishing up his court, getting the musicians ready. Unfortunately, Anne knew nothing of music came from a singularly unpolished world. And when Henry rushed down to Rochester to meet Anne as she arrived in England, and he went, or, you know, on her journey to London, um, he went down in disguise, and it all went hideously wrong. Anne failed to recognise him. Anne showed her disgust at this apparent huge stranger accosting her, But again, the disguised meeting was an absolute regular of courtly love. This was a very established game. True love was meant to see through any disguise. Unfortunately, no one had told Anne. This was not a game Anne of Cleves was equipped to play.
0: The courtly code um, between women, because obviously, you know, Mm. the men are pursuing her. And what what I wondered was... Um, how did the courtly code work between women? Would they have dis- would they have discussed mm-hmm. it? Do we know, um, you know, as a way to deal with these uh, uh, the, the, but, the other sex?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um certainly heading back to where Andreas Kapalanus is getting a good, you know, someone should tell him he's getting good PR here. <laughs> um, Certainly, he did envisage, absolutely, this world of this group of powerful women discussing this, you know, jury of ladies discussing all these matters among themselves. So, yes, in in that sense, it absolutely did. Um, Where I'd see it reappearing in a way for the subject of my book is questions like that continental education Anne Boleyn had. Because Anne Boleyn, in the years before she reappeared at the, appeared at the English court, she'd been um, a youthful maid to Margaret of Austria. And then she'd been at the court of, you know, first of Mary Tudor in France, but staying on at the French court, where she uh, undoubtedly Came under to some degree the influence of Marguerite of Navarre, and both those powerful European ladies, Margaret of Austria, Marguerite of Navarre, had a lot to say about love in general and courtly love in particular. Not all of it flattering, but so there is a sense there, yes, of lessons being passed from one woman to another. That was, in a way, what my last book, Game of Queens, was about. So we move
0: from Henry VIII to Edward VI. Edward VI dies. Lady Jane Grey is briefly uh, a candidate for Queen. And it's a tragic story. She's so young and and manipulated. Um, But how did the courtly code work with with Lady Jane Grey?
1: Mm. Yes, you see there, I don't think it did really. I mean, there is a, a measure of hiatus after the death of, of Henry VIII, as you say, his son Edward comes to the throne as a child and dies before, you know, his romantic proclivities became apparent, but nothing that we know about him suggests that he, his interests were, he, you know, he marched to a different drama. His interests were in the Protestant faith. And... Jane Grey, of course, came also from that world, and NB that the new, uh, certainly the sort of uh, the stricter arms of the Protestant faith, didn't have much use for courtly love. So in a way, this is kind of you know pro- this is almost the exception that proves the rule, in the sense that oh the Catholic faith had at least you know had reverence for the Virgin Mary, for female saints, allowed a measure of worship of those holy women at least. The the new Protestant faith really, certainly in its more extreme elements, really didn't. Where you do see it to some degree, only some, is in um, the behavior, the reign of the woman who of course won the throne, against Lady Jane Grey, Mary, Bloody Mary, as she sometimes, you know, rather unfairly called Henry VIII's daughter. She also uh, was no no real follower of the courtly code as Catherine of Aragon's daughter, as someone who'd learned to define herself by her religion. She, again, march to a different drama but at the same time there is a rather anachronistic flash of romanticism in Mary. I mean when the whole question of her marriage came up with Philip of Spain um, she, she protested and now I'm quoting from memory and I'll get it wrong but you know as common people basically choose their own proclivities as they follow their own hearts in this matter surely sovereigns may claim an equal liberty and most people then have said no they mayn't so even in Mary there was some flash of um of a feeling not altogether acceptable for her day but of course it's when Elizabeth comes to the throne that things really get going
0: yes so elizabeth i um a, a great monarch now she's she's almost the polar opposite to her father who in that she never married uh, he obviously did the contrast between the two and yet yet it, this does at least it, it comes out in the book that that this is the sort of golden era for uh, for for the uh, for for the courtly code
1: i mean I don't quite know, but golden, yes, in a sense, in that it reached its greatest height in, in England. But it was, you know, this was almost the kind of, you know, fatal last days, you know. It was becoming an overblown fruit that, that had to fall. But nonetheless, um, Elizabeth, like her father in a different way, absolutely used the courtly code because Elizabeth's reign again we don't always remember this now it was seen at at first as presenting a huge problem the reign of for any woman in England to be a, a ruler a queen regnant was controversial yes Mary had done it but only for six years and Mary had married and of course as a Catholic Mary was in some sense Under the spiritual authority of the Pope, she wasn't the absolute top of the tree in the way that Elizabeth was. Um, Although we now we now know Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen, the assumption in the early days of the reign would be that she too absolutely had to marry. When, over the years, it became apparent she wouldn't, there had to be a kind of language, a coding for this very controversial unmarried monarchy and courtly love provided it I mean we know there's been lots of work done on a lot of the iconographies Elizabeth used you know of the Virgin Mary of classical literature but courtly love it's amazing how closely it fit her particular bill it gave just what she needed I mean, on the one hand, it made it possible for all those favourites and courtiers, men like Leicester, Hatton, Raleigh, Essex in the end, to sort of, you know, present themselves in postures of devotion for, for years on end and probably, well, for most of them certainly not actually get anywhere, not even have expected to get anywhere really. On another way, it gave license to Elizabeth's own, you know, flirtatious behavior. But more fundamentally, there was a lot about the courtly code that was spot on for Elizabeth. I mean, the courtly lady was meant to be demanding, difficult, you know, prodding her lover with a cattle prod, effectively. Well, Elizabeth didn't have many difficulties with that one, did she? The courtly lady, however, was meant to provide a superior moral example. Well, Elizabeth was the woman who was meant to be giving moral example to her whole country, you know, who was meant to be God's representative on earth. Even things like the theory of the queen's two bodies, you know, one, um, the one frail natural female body the other theoretical ruler's body fit with that kind of gender reversal in courtly love because there was a kind of gender reversal c.s lewis one of the great authorities on it as well as the inventor of narnia um noted the courtly lover addressed his lady back in you know back when as midon which actually means not my lady but my lord you know, and all of it worked for Elizabeth perfectly. And I think she and those around her were far too canny propagandists not to recognise such a good thing when they saw it.
0: Now, I wanted to talk about some of Elizabeth's suitors, or I guess they were attempting it. I, I mean, and and some of them are rather pathetic, aren't they? Um, <laughs> Could could you talk a little bit about about them and and how they uh, you know tried, sure. tried had a go, yeah.
1: Uh. and yeah, and yeah, I think I think you're thinking of the favourites rather than the foreign
0: yes. foreigners. Yes, I yes, I yes. am. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Well, I think I think they were in slightly different positions. Well, I think one of them was in a different position. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, he wound up, of course, as the Queen's first and greatest favourite. But when she came to the throne, there was real, repeated, perpetual talk halfway across Europe that she would actually marry him. She couldn't do it then and there because, of course, Robert Dudley was already a married man. But there was talk his wife might die, his wife might be put aside. When his wife did die, of course, Amy, Amy Robsart, it was in a blast of scandal that she seemed to have been murdered that made it impossible for Elizabeth and, and Lester Robert Dudley to marry then and there though I find it very significant that even when the scandal died away you know Elizabeth never did marry him but Robert Dudley was someone who really was a suitor he had realistic hopes Elizabeth might marry him I mean Elizabeth told um Spanish ambassador jokingly that there were rumours around she had married Robert that her ladies were asking whether they should kiss his hand. The I don't think anybody else was in quite that position. Christopher Hatton, younger but of the same generation if you like as Essex, wrote these lavish protestations of love, but there was really absolutely, there was no question of him being a serious suitor. Indeed, I think part of what made the game so pleasurable for both of them was that, you know, it patently was just a fantasy. And later in Elizabeth's reign, the men of the second generation, if you like, Walter Raleigh and particularly the Earl of Essex, um, Leicester's stepson, of course, uh, played this same game. But by then, I mean, Essex was three decades younger than Elizabeth. You know, there was actually talk that he was her son rather than rather than her would-be lover. He still used the same language, you know, all about conquering her resisting will and being captivated by beauty and so on. But I don't think anyone was expected to take it seriously other than in that literary, courtly sense. The
0: courtly code, how did that, and this is my last question really,
1: uh, how did that
0: courtly code evolve? I'm thinking that it's it kind of evolved into the Victorian era of you know the gentleman, the lady, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of, those kind of behaviours that, that seem so uh, natural to the Victorian era. Is that, is that the na- natural evolution of the courtly code?
1: Yes. Uh, yes with some hiccups on the way Elizabeth of course was succeeded by James I not a man who'd be having any truck with any of this nonsense thank you Uh, though mind you even he wasn't above using the Arthurian stories you might say that to some degree it it vanished from centre stage over the next century or two but it was the romantic certainly in England I'm talking about in, in England or in Britain, as by then it was. It was the Romantic era that really brought it back into full force. Partly a general interest, both, you know, emotional and academic, in all things medieval. Medieval history, medieval literature, King Arthur. And there was then a gigantic, very conscious, recreation of chivalry and the courtly code. I mean, two centuries after the last tournament in England, 1839, the Eglinton tournament, knights in absolutely authentic armor, thundering down the lists at the castle of the, you know, the Earl of Eglinton, prize awarded by a queen of beauty, hundreds of thousands of spectators. And it just went on and on um, with some slight provisos. I mean, in a sense, uh, the courtly code was kind of borrowed for Victorian morality a bit. I mean, Tennyson, no one could be more interested in the Arthurian stories, for example, but his idylls of the king has uh, has Arthur thundering away at a Guinevere prostrate at his feet, you know, saying he'll forgive her as eternal, God forgives, and, you know, and when she's saying, oh, she's saying, uh, yes, but, he Arthur my husband is high and cold and passionless not like him not like my Lancelot and you do rather feel like saying yeah Arthur you know there's a reason she left you there's a reason she went off with Lancelot instead but the pre-Raphaelites loved all those stories from a completely different angle you know they just loved Guinevere and Lancelot um so too did the, the souls this kind of upper class coterie there's a story one of them and wilford and blunt going to visit another and they walked in, they walked around a medieval castle both dressed in white discussing lancelot and guinevere i absolutely love that she she changed into black to tell him they could only be friends but i think w- the way the way the courtly code the whole idea of chivalry and of course the idea of chivalry was huge for the victorians i mean you'd got sir galahad picture of sir galahad in the chapel at eton you'd got baden powell telling his baby boys baby knights his boy scouts to be chivalrous to ladies it was co-opted into the idea of empire also though that's probably one we can't really go into here um because it's a a very big subject but that whole kind of Victorian picture we've probably a lot of us seen the illustrations in children's books and so on it's the Victorians gave us the basic image the knight the the, the lover the squire kneeling at at the lady's feet and I think it's that picture which has come on down the 20th century I think we are absolutely getting courtly love in several different ways. You know, partly through our whole idea of romance and what love means. You know, just meant love at first sight, love as something that ennobles you. But we are not getting it direct from the 12th century. I think we get it through the Victorian prism. It was all—it was those great Victorian images and stories which many of us i won't say kids now because i don't know but my generation you know all of us who grew up in the last decades of the 20th century we all were still receiving this and maybe that's why we need to discuss it today
0: absolutely uh, that's a great way to end it sarah uh, it's a it's it's a, it's a really i really enjoyed reading it it's a it's a fun book so i do recommend it um, out next week, Tudors in Love, the courtly code behind the last medieval dynasty. Sarah, thank you. You've also actually written a, a wonderful article for us in, in next month's issue of Aspects of History. So so our readers and listeners should check that out. It's, it's very amusing. And I, I thank you again for your insight into the courtly code. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed Sarah's expertise in The Courtly Code. Her book is out of the moment. We'll have our next podcast out soon, and that will be a chat with Andrew Roberts, the best-selling and acclaimed historian and author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Napoleon the Great, Masters and Commanders, and Salisbury, Victorian Titan. We'll be discussing George III, the king during the American War of Independence, and probably most famous because of the film The Man is the King George. So do join us then.